And I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. We continue our study through the book of Revelation, and this morning we enter a section that is just one of my favorite sections in the entire Bible. It's Jesus speaking to his church. I don't know how many of you have had the opportunity to look for a new church. Uh, as you're looking for a new church, you're trying to figure out, maybe you moved somewhere and you're trying to figure out where should I be going to church. Or you were involved in a church and the church dissolved or the church split or something happened where you had to move on and now you're at a different church. You're looking for another church. What do you look for in a church? What are you on the hunt for when you are making the decision of what church should we go to? What church should we attend? I personally have never even had this experience in my entire life. I've never had the experience of uh, trying to find a new church to be a part of. I've only ever gone to three churches in my entire life. Uh, I was born and raised in one church, so I didn't get that pick. My parents picked that for me. I went there for 14 years of my life, and then I went to another church. My parents moved to another church. Again, I didn't really have a say in that. I was too young, so we moved over to another church. And that was the church where I started getting plugged into ministry, started doing uh, internship there, got a, a part-time job there, got a full-time job there. So I uh, didn't really want to leave that church, loved that church, was there for 14 years. There's a pattern in my life of 14s, apparently. So 14 years at one church, 14 years at another church. And then that church uh, sent us out to plant a church. And so we launched a church almost six years ago. And uh, I've been here six years, and I guess if we continue the pattern, I've got eight more years left here, and then I'm moving on to another church. But I, I, don't, I don't have the experience of, of picking a church, of choosing what church do I want to be a part of. I don't know how you go about deciding that. Do you Google, what church should I go to in Northridge? Do you Google it? Do you have a list of uh, a criteria, this is what we are looking for in a church. Where does that list come from? I, I just have never experienced that. An even better question to ask, more than just what are you looking for in a church, is what is Jesus looking for in a church? What is he looking for in a church? What does Jesus want for his church? Well, what can we learn from the scriptures concerning his purposes, his passions, his priorities for his people as we seek to live for His glory. What, what should distinguish the church from every other human institution? What are the differences between the design for the local church found in the Bible versus the modern-day culture churches that we have today? Should that difference exist? What is Jesus looking for in a church? Well, these two chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we are going to unpack what Jesus is looking for in a church. He visits his own churches. He visits seven different churches, and he does not keep his thoughts about these churches private. We get to eavesdrop on his understanding of his own people. This is a beautiful, systematic approach to the study of the church. We would call it ecclesiology. Most often when people begin a study of the church, they go to the book of Acts. And the book of Acts is a great place to go to to study the church. But the book of Acts, the church is just in its baby stage. There's a lot happening. There's a lot happening even that doesn't happen today. Even in the New Testament when the church is fully formed, we don't see these things happening as often, as frequently, or as much at all. 
So we can go to the book of Acts to study the church, but it's really studying a time in history that is not happening now. Or we can go to Revelation 2 and 3, a fully formed church. Now we see out of the baby stage, we see a fully formed adult church with the full-grown stages of the church happening before our eyes. And we can look at them and we can ask the question, what does Jesus think about his church? What does he want for his church? What does he not want for his church? These letters, these seven letters that Jesus writes to seven churches help us understand what brings judgment upon a church, what brings blessing to a church. They're very small. Revelation 2 through 3 is just over 1,500 words. It's longer than Titus and Philemon, but it's not too much shorter than Philippians, Colossians, and 2 Timothy. It really is its own uh, epistle. It's its own letter. These are the letters of Jesus to his church. And I believe that Revelation 2 and 3 should represent everything that we are about as a church. We're we're almost about to celebrate six years as a church, and Revelation 2 and 3 should recalibrate our thinking, recalibrate our understanding of what it means to be the body of Christ. This needs to make up the very fabric and DNA of who we are as a church. Revelation 2 and 3 is, is the DNA of who we must be and what we must not be as a church who worships and follows Jesus Christ. So this morning, what we're going to do is we're going to just do an overview of the letters as a whole. I want to give you an outline for every single letter. That'll take a little bit of time, and then we'll dive into part one of the church in Ephesus. We'll do part one today. We'll do part two next week, uh, next Lord's Day, Lord willing. But let's read the first letter that Jesus writes to the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter two, verses one through seven, and then we'll ask God's blessing on our time. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds, and I know your toil, and I know your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men. And you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Father, we come before you and we are a needy people. And as we read these verses, these verses read us and they lay us open and bare And they challenge us and they confront us and they ask a very simple question. 
have we too left our first love? God, I pray that you give us a sobriety in our minds and our hearts to ask difficult questions of our affections. We wouldn't be asking questions about our knowledge or even about our actions, but of our affections, what it is that we love the most. God, I pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit this morning, reveal to us, open our eyes to see what we love the most. Maybe to see where we too, like the Ephesian church, have fallen, abandoning our first love. God, I'm asking for impossible things, supernatural things that I cannot manufacture. I have no power to do anything. You alone, through your word and your Holy Spirit, have the power to change hearts, to change minds, to open eyes, and to give affections for Jesus. So grant us humility, even as we studied this morning in our time during Sunday school. Grant us humility to look out for the interest of Christ as he reveals it to us this morning. Holy Spirit, we need you. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Revelation chapter 2 and 3, seven letters to seven churches. And what I want to do is just begin with an introduction to all of these seven letters, all of these seven different churches. Each letter follows the exact same form and pattern and formula. And there are seven components, which is helpful to remember, seven letters to seven churches with seven components in each letter. So I'm going to give them to you very quickly, and then we'll go through them slowly. So if you don't catch all of them right now, it's okay. First, there's a greeting, then a description of Christ, then a description of what Jesus knows, then a criticism, then a warning, then a promise, then an exhortation. All seven of those things find themselves in each of these letters. Sometimes an exhortation is flipped with a promise, uh, not usually, but a couple times the exhortation comes before the promise. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, or the, the, ch- the letter to the uh, church in Ephesus is one of those where it flips. The promise comes after the exhortation. And then there's uh, two of these churches that actually have no criticism whatsoever because uh, they have done nothing that is worthy of being criticized by Jesus. They are just being encouraged, and there are sometimes warnings, sometimes not. So every single letter has these seven components inside of it. Let's start with the first one. I want to give a little definition to each of these things so that you can see them and look out for them as we study through each of these letters. So first, there's always a greeting. There's always a greeting. We can use uh, Revelation chapter 2 as our template. There's always a greeting, and it starts like this, to the angel of the church in whatever the city is, write. That's always the greeting. There's always a greeting to the angel of the church in a specific city, write. Uh, To the angel, angel is just a Greek word for messenger, and it refers always and only to three different types of people groups in the Bible. It's either a human, a good angel, or a bad angel. Uh, Angels are demons. So those are the only three options that we have here. For the sake of time, I'm just going to tell you that I believe the evidence would point to these angels are messengers, uh, meaning the pastor or the person who's going to deliver the message to the church that is in the city. Some people think it's the person delivering the message, uh, the scroll to the pastor of the church, uh, but there's a little bit of a problem with that because they are supposed to give an account and hold the church accountable to what's being uh, said here, so that would be weird that they deliver it, they leave, how are they going to hold them accountable? 
I do not think that it represents an actual angel or an actual demon. Uh, I believe, and most people would hold, that this is a pastor. These are the, the, the leaders of the churches. They're the messengers that are being uh, given a message to deliver to their church. And these are seven real churches. Um, there, there are some who would take these seven churches, because the number seven means completion or fullness, that this is a figurative representation of all of the ages of the churches, so seven different ages of the church. Um, or some people would take it to mean the totality of everything that the church on a whole for all of human history will struggle through. Um, I, I don't think that the ages of the churches, seven different ages of the churches, I don't think that that's uh, seen here. And I don't, I don't think it's wrong to say that pretty much every struggle that we will find in the church as a whole is found here, but I don't think that's what Jesus is referring to. I believe he's specifically talking to seven actual locations, seven actual churches of actual cities. That's why he includes the city to the church in Ephesus, the church in Smyrna, the church in Laodicea, Philadelphia. And one of the ways that is helpful to see uh, that this is probably best to be taken, and this is the way that we say the Bible, as we've been learning from our brother Marty. We take it at face value, literally. We just take it for what it says, unless we're given clues. Otherwise, we don't need, we don't have any clues that Ephesus means something other than the city in uh, Asia Minor and the church in the city of Ephesus. We have no other reason to believe that it's anything other than the city and the church in the city of Ephesus. But one helpful thing, and I'm going to ask Jeff, I don't normally do this, but I'm going to ask Jeff to throw up a map here on the screen. Uh, one of the most helpful ways that we can see what Jesus is doing as he's speaking to the churches, he puts them uh, in a geographical order, and the order, uh, Paul or John is here on Patmos. He is exiled in this little island, this little uh, basically um, Alcatraz for the, the Romans, putting them on to Alcatraz. And 60 miles away is Ephesus, and it's the first stop. It's a port city. You can see there's a little bit of an uh, indentation there. It's a port city, so you would go to Ephesus. And mail was transferred back and forth between Patmos and uh, Asia Minor. So uh, some of you asked the question, how did John get these letters over to his churches? Uh, he did it through the mail being delivered. So he would send this over to Ephesus. That's the first church. And then there was a postal route where if somebody was delivering mail, they would go in this circle. And lo and behold, that circle, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, that is the order in which we find all of the churches given to us listed out in Revelation 2 and 3. So we're in Asia Minor. There's an order here because somebody would be delivering these in their mail bag, and they're doing it in order. Jesus is giving them in order. So I think it's best to be taken Literally, we've got uh, the Aegean Sea here. I believe right over here is uh, where the Turners are. So over, we're, we're, in, we're in the same vicinity. Um, so Revelation chapter 2 and 3, seven literal churches, seven literal cities, and they are written, these letters are written to the angel, to the pastor of the church. That's the greeting. Secondly, we find... In every single letter, and it always comes second, a description of Jesus, a description of Christ himself. He is speaking to his church, and so he describes who he is. And it's very interesting because every description that he gives of himself in Revelation 2 and 3 is a, 
uh, calling back what he said about himself in Revelation chapter 1. Remember the vision of chapter 1, the vision of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. Every single description of Jesus in chapter 1 is taken and used in Revelation 2 and 3. And it's very fascinating to see because every description is used very specifically by Jesus to speak to some element that his church is going through. For instance, if you go down to the second paragraph here, the persecuted church, my Bible says in verse 8, the church in Smyrna, heavily persecuted, one of the most persecuted churches in the entire known world at that time, dying day and night, persecuted and always in, uh, living under the threat of being killed. So what does Jesus say about himself to a church that's always under the threat of persecution? He says, verse 8, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life. Every description is a relevant description of some aspect of what that church needs to hear. As Smyrna is contemplating, we might be killed for trusting in Jesus. Jesus says, it's okay. I already died I have been raised from the dead. I hold the keys of death and of Hades. Remember, this was the description of him in chapter 1. I hold it all. I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to fear death. There's a compromising church in verse 18. Drop down to Thyatira. Thyatira is a compromising church. They're involved in uh, a number of different sins, but one of the most uh, egregious sins and the most prevalent sins in this church is the sin of sexual immorality. So what does Jesus describe himself as in this context? Verse 18, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire. Remember that penetrating laser vision. I see through everything. I can see your hidden sin. I can see your secret sin. You think you're hiding it, but I can see it. And even more than that, his feet are like burnished bronze. Remember, purified. He's walking in the midst of his church, purifying them. He is holy, and his holiness is going to go rampantly throughout the church. And if you do not want to turn, if you do not want to repent, his holiness will destroy you, will judge you. He's walking in the midst of his church. That's why he gives a description of himself that is pertaining and very relevant to each specific church. So we have a greeting, we have a description of Christ, Number three, every letter contains a description of what Christ knows. A description of what Christ knows. This is a penetrating evaluation that's specific to what every single church is going through. It's a description of what Jesus knows. Verse two in Revelation two, I know your deeds. This is what I know about you. He is sovereign over his churches and he knows everything that's going on. And he tells them, I know, I see. That should bring terror on the one hand. Jesus knows everything. He sees it all. But that should also bring comfort. He sees the work that you are doing that no one else sees, that no one applauds you for, that no one thanks you for. He sees it all. After a description of what Christ knows, fourthly, Jesus gives a criticism. He gives a criticism. This always corresponds to what he knows about the church. I know these things about you, and if there's anything in what he knows about the church that is worthy of criticizing, he will bring that out. I have this against you. So I know these things, but I have this against you. Again, like I said earlier, there are two churches that have no criticism. The other five are criticized for something. After the criticism comes a warning, number five. There's a warning. If you do not repent, then you will be judged. Judgment is coming. Judgment's coming to the whole world. Remember, this is the book of Revelation. Judgment's coming to the whole world. 
But Jesus says, I'm going to start with judging my own people, my house. Judgment begins in the house of God. And so he gives a warning. If you do not repent, you will be judged. But he doesn't stop there, and I love that. He could. He's God. He could absolutely say, this is all I'm going to say. You need to repent or else I'm coming to judge you. But number six, he gives every church a promise. This is a promise of motivation, a promise of blessing. If you repent, this will happen good for you. If you do not repent, you'll be judged. But if you repent, there's a blessing that will be given. And I love that because that reminds me that not every single sin or struggle should be addressed the exact same way. It's not always going to be stop it or else this bad thing's going to happen to you. Jesus says that, but he also says stop it and start doing this because this good thing will happen to you. We've talked a lot about parenting in our family Bible hour with the, the ought of the command needs to follow, the is of why the command is there, the good behind the command. Jesus is doing that. He's giving a command. He's, you ought to do this. But he's giving the is around it. You're able to do it. I've given you my Holy Spirit to do it. You have the Word of God to do it. And if you don't, there is a judgment coming. And if you do, there is a blessing that will be given. So there's a warning, there's a promise. And then finally, there's an exhortation. Number seven, there's an exhortation. Every single letter has this line attached to it. It's in verse 7 in chapter 2 with the church in Ephesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every single letter has that exhortation. Listen up. Pay attention. There's an ability to hear without truly hearing. There's an ability to see without truly seeing. That's why we pray every single Sunday, open our eyes, because we don't want to see. You're you're seeing the text. We don't want to see without truly seeing. And so there's an exhortation, stop, pay attention, open your ears, open your eyes. We cannot do that on our own, so we're praying constantly, God, help us. And so we pray that for our own eyes and our hearts and our minds this morning. God, help us to understand what you are saying to us as he spoke to his own church so many years ago. That's a little bit of an overview. We have a greeting, we have a description of Christ, we have a description of what Christ knows, we have a criticism, we have a warning, we have a promise, and we have an exhortation. Every single letter contains those. So, now, let's dive into the church in Ephesus, verses 1 through 7. The first church, Jesus begins with a greeting, verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. Again, the angel, the pastor of the church in Ephesus, write these things. Ephesus, let's talk a little bit about Ephesus. Most likely because Ephesus was that port city. It was the church that would have been the first on the postal route. That's why Jesus says, since it's geographically first, let's put that first. Ephesus is 60 miles away from Patmos. John is writing from Patmos. It's 60 miles away. It's the capital of the Roman province in Asia. It's the greatest city in Asia Minor. Some people have called it the Vanity Fair of the known world in that time. It was the center of worship of Artemis, the fertility goddess. She's also known by her Latin name, Diana. Uh, She's found in Acts chapter 19. We'll talk more about that as we continue. And there was a temple. There was a huge temple to Artemis, to Diana. It was right in the middle of the city. It's actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's enormous. And just like Jerusalem, where the Temple Mount was built on a mountain in the middle of the city at the highest point, so too in Ephesus, at the highest point of Ephesus of the city, on a hill, there was an enormous temple to Diana. It was more than 100,000 square feet. 
And if you're like me, you go, that sounds big, but I have no idea what that represents. It is twice the size of a football field. So take two football fields, put them together, you have over 100,000 square feet. It was enormous. That's why it's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was the capital of religious worship. It was a center for the occult. It was a center for witchcraft. It was a center for worship. It was a center for immorality. Worship and immorality were combined. It was also a hub of sea trade, as we talked about. All sorts of commerce, lots of people. It's a very large city. Between 250,000 to 500,000 people live there. They had an amphitheater in, in the city, and the amphitheater alone held 25,000 people. Huge city, lots of things going on. Basically, Ephesus is Los Angeles back then. It's just L.A. If you were actually to combine L.A., Hollywood, Long Beach into one location, you've got what Ephesus is. So we have the city. We have an understanding of the city historically. Biblically, what about the city biblically? Acts chapter 16, verse 6, Paul wanted to go to Ephesus. The Holy Spirit restrained him from going. The Holy Spirit said, not right now, but you're going to go. And he ends up going there and spending three years there, pastoring, helping to plant a church and pastor a church for three years. The church in Ephesus was begun by Priscilla and Aquila. This is in Acts chapter 18. Uh, And then Apollos came and helped out. That's Acts chapter 18 as well. And when Paul was on his second missionary journey, he was finally able to go to the church, help to found the church around 52 AD. And on his third missionary journey, he spent three years teaching and preaching and building up that church. He loved the church in Ephesus. He spent more time at this church than any other church that he went to. And he loved it because it was such an important city. It's so enormous. It's the hub of so much commerce happening that Paul wanted a church there that could share the gospel with all of these people that were going through. In Acts chapter 19, there was an enormous uproar in Ephesus because of the Christians. If you remember, there was a man named Demetrius who was not allowed to sell uh, his silver statues that were a depiction of Artemis or Diana. And Gaius and Aristarchus were dragged away. Paul wanted to go with them. They were in prison, but God did not allow Paul to go. And the, the apostles held him back and said, you have other things that you need to do. It was an amazing city, but at the same time, it was a dangerous city to be a Christian in. It's no wonder that Timothy, who becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus, was terrified, needed a pep talk by Paul to say, don't be afraid, don't be timid, even though people might be trying to kill you. That's its biblical history. So we have its historical understanding. We have its biblical history. What about its pastoral history? Ephesus' pastoral history. It was planted by Priscilla and Aquila with the help of Apollos. Paul was left there at the very beginning to help found it. He was their pastor for about three years. That's told to us in Acts chapter 20. After Paul, Silas pastored the church. After Silas, Timothy pastored the church. After Timothy, John pastored the church. Probably because Timothy actually was taken to jail. Tradition tells us that he was in prison, and so John became the pastor. So five pastors over the course of 50 years in the church in Ephesus. And listen to the pastors that make up uh, the genealogical record of five pastors in 50 years of church history in Ephesus. Number one, you have Apollos. Number two, you have Paul. Three, you have Silas. Four, you have Timothy. And five, you have John. That is, that's the hall of fame of pastors and preachers. This church is magnificently blessed. They also had eight letters that were written to them. You have Ephesians. First and second Timothy, when Timothy was the pastor in the church in Ephesus. 
the Gospel of John that John wrote as the pastor of the church, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and Revelation. So eight different letters were in some way pertaining to, informed by, and written to the church in Ephesus. So we have a greeting, the angel of the church in Ephesus. We have an understanding historically what Ephesus was. Biblically, you can go to Acts chapter 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, all the way through. You can go to those chapters and see Paul working on missionary journeys to get there to help found the church. And we have a pastoral history of this church. It's an amazing church. Number two, we have the description of Jesus. So number one, we start off with our greeting. Number two, we have a description of Jesus. In verse, <clears throat> verse 1, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. This is a description of Jesus' omnipresence. He is there in the midst of his fellowship. He's there in the midst of his church. He knows what's happening in the church. He sees what's happening in the church. He's there to encourage them. He's, here, he's there to criticize them and help them. And he holds them. He has not let them go. That, again, is both encouraging that he's not letting them go. And it's terrifying that he can if he wants to. And he's going to give that warning. If you do not repent, I'm just going to remove your lampstand and I will hold you no longer. The seven golden lampstands, the seven churches. Jesus is walking in the midst of his church. Number three, a declaration of what Jesus knows. A declaration of what Jesus knows knows. Every single declaration begins with, I know. Every evaluation of every church begins this way. God has complete knowledge about his church. All facts of life in that church as they occur are known to God, just like us as well. Every single fact of our life together as a fellowship at CBC is known and seen by God. So Jesus says, I know, verse 2. I know. And he's going to say, I know two very good things about you. We could put them under the headings of, I know your deeds and I know your doctrine. I know your deeds and I know your doctrine. I know your deeds, he begins with. I know your deeds, your work, what you are striving to accomplish. They are working hard. They're involved in ministry. And I know that and I see that. I see your toil. That's a word that means to work to the point of exhaustion. I see not only what you're doing in your work, but I see how you're working. You're working yourself to a sweat, to exhaustion. I see that. And you don't stop. Perseverance, my Bible says, or endurance, some of your translations might say. I know your deeds, your work. I know that you're doing it to the point of exhaustion, and I know that you're not giving up. You are enduring. You're persevering. That word perseverance means to sit under a burden, under a pressure, and not give up, to stay under that, to bear it up, and just to wait for God to either take it off or deliver you somehow. I see your deeds. I know what you're doing. I love that idea of endurance. It's used elsewhere in Greek as a military term. Uh, moving forward yard by yard. You take one step forward, you hold your ground, and you don't give up any ground. It's slow, it's steady, it's long, it's arduous. But I'm not giving up. Jesus says, I know you're doing that. And brothers and sisters, we need to stop right there. Our Savior says the exact same thing about us. If you are working hard in ministry... If you are working hard, we have so many different aspects of ministry that's happening in this church. We have people over at the VA. We have people doing CEF and training others to go out into schools and going into schools themselves 
to share the gospel with kids and to speak to parents. We have ministry at different school campuses with teachers that are teaching and staying after class for long hours talking to students, sharing Christ with them. We have so many different avenues of ministry. And most of those avenues of ministry will never be seen by anyone except for you, God, and whoever's involved in that ministry with you. And you may never get one thank you for what you're doing. I don't know if you've ever been there where you're just thinking, does anybody know? Is this good for anything? Does anybody care? Maybe you have that thought, man, a thank you would be nice. Jesus says, oh, I know. I know. And he's going to say, don't give up. Keep doing what you're doing. I know. And if God knows the work that you're doing, oh, may that be enough for us to keep on doing it. May it be enough just to know God knows and he is saying, this is my beloved son or my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Keep on going for it. We have a description of what Jesus knows. He knows, number one, their deeds. Number two, he knows their doctrine. We're going to call it doctrine. He knows their doctrine. This is found in the middle of verse two. You cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, but they're not, and you have found them to be false. So there's two different types of people that Jesus says you need to keep an eye out for and you need to have spiritual discernment to understand who these people are. The first, uh, he says, evil men. Evil men. You cannot tolerate evil men. This word for evil man is found in other places referring to a cowardly soldier or a lazy student. This is somebody who is not doing what they're supposed to do, right? Cowardly soldier, it's not supposed to be a coward. Lazy student, but it's supposed to be hard worker. So this is somebody who's not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And in this context, they are not living the way that they profess to be uh, following Jesus. They profess to be Christians, but they're clearly not. They're denying him with their lifestyle. And actually, that's part of what the Nicolaitans taught. We're going to talk a little bit more about them next week, Lord willing. But the Nicolaitans said that you can follow Jesus and have nothing change in your life. Repentance is not necessary if you want to follow Jesus. And Jesus says, oh, I know that you know that's dead wrong. I know that you don't tolerate that. You're telling people, no, you need to repent. And that's good. I know that you're doing that. The second group of people are these false apostles. You put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they're not you have found them to be false. So you're, you've put them to the test. How, how do you put somebody to the test? You need to know what they're teaching. You need to know the Scripture well enough to know that doesn't align with what Scripture teaches. So these people know the Scriptures very well. This church knows the Scripture very well. And so they're able to say, that's not biblically accurate. That's not right. They put them to the test. Prophets, apostles would prophesy and say, uh, this is what's going to come to pass. And it's very simple to put that to the test. If it comes to pass, awesome. If it doesn't come to pass, then you're not right. You're not a, an apostle or a prophet. And if your teaching doesn't correspond to what Scripture says, you are clearly not an apostle. So they had doctrine and spiritual discernment. They were able to look at what was being said theologically, look at the teaching, judge its truthfulness. They were able to understand what was biblically correct and not. Paul himself said to the church in Ephesus that savage wolves would come in from among their own leaders and start leading them astray. He said, this is going to happen. There's going to be false teachers that are going to come in and are going to lead you astray. And that's exactly what's happening here. But Ephesus says, we're not going to tolerate that. 
Very interesting. I think most Christians would say it's unloving to judge others. And yet here Jesus is saying, way to go being intolerant, right? He's commending their judgment. Now, it's not that it's not done in love. Their judgment is compassionate, but it's a very unloving thing when you know that somebody is doing something that is wrong and will lead them to hell. It's an unloving thing to stand by and say, I'm going to quote-unquote love them by not saying anything. You want to speak the truth in love. You want to be careful and cautious and compassionate as you speak, but you need to be confrontational if something is being done that will lead somebody to hell. And Jesus says, you are doing a great job in your spiritual discernment and doctrine to test what somebody is saying and to call them out for what they're doing wrong and to help lead other people in the right path. Jesus commends them for their deeds and for their doctrine. He commends their intolerance. And he commends them for doing work that is exhausting for the praise of God alone. He commends them for their doctrine. Oh, that God would commend us for this, that Jesus would say, I know your deeds and your doctrine, Christ Bible Church. I know it. And it's good. You are working hard in ministry and you know the truth and you're able to call out error with loving kindness, with compassionate uh, understanding, but you know the truth. There is so much that is good in the church in Ephesus. They have it all together. One pastor said that if you were to enter into the Ephesian church, you would feel like you're in the presence of greatness, spiritual greatness. Another pastor said you could sum up the church in Ephesus as the few, the proud, the Ephesians. This is just, this is everything that you want to be. But unfortunately, the letter doesn't end there. Even though they have persevered, verse 3, and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary in all of their deeds and doctrine, verse 4, the criticism, the criticism, but even though you have all these things that are really, really good going for you, I do have something against you. But I have this against you. Their doctrinally sound theology, their desire for purity became their idol and pushed away their first love. But this I have against you, that you have left your first love. First, maybe numerically, maybe that they love Jesus, obviously not first in their entire life because we are born with hearts that don't want to love Jesus, But when the work of regeneration happens in our hearts, we love Jesus more than we love anything. And then slowly over time, other things can creep in and can say, pulling our attention, no, love this instead, love this instead. So maybe first numerically after regeneration, oh, you loved me, and then you started to love other things. I think that that works. It also works just first in priority. You've left your most important love to start following and pursuing and being devoted to lesser loves. The irony here of this entire letter is that though they had amazing doctrine and deeds, what they were lacking in was a devotion to the one to whom they were working, for whom they were working, and the one to whom was given all the doctrine to begin with. They love the doctrine, they love the deeds, but they have abandoned loving the one for whom all those things count and all those things matter. And this is an enormous, this 
this point weighed heavy on my soul this last week. The reality that there are certain kinds of warfare that breed certain kinds of casualties in our lives. They were living out the warfare of we must fight for doctrinal purity. And as they were fighting for that, their love for Jesus started to turn into love for rightness, correctness, love for doctrinal purity, above love for Jesus. Brothers and sisters, engaging in theological wars can often distract us from our devotion to the real object of our affections. Doesn't mean that we don't engage in those. First of all, we should never desire to engage in those. We should never say, I cannot wait to fight some theological battle. That's called pugnacious in the Bible, wanting, loving, picking fights. That's not what we are about. If somebody brings the battle to us and we have to stand for right doctrine and right theology, we will make that stand very clear with compassion and love. We're not going out looking for fights. But here, these Ephesian believers are distracted. They love their deeds, they love their doctrine, and they are starting to slowly turn from their first devotion. General Patton in World War II uh, was said to look over his troop one, one time engaging in a German uh, battle. There was a battle against the Germans. And he said, as he was looking over his troops fighting the Germans, he said, oh, how I love it so. Oh, how I love it so. What's the it? It wasn't the flag. It wasn't America. It wasn't freedom. It wasn't even his own troops. He loved the fight. Christians can very much take on that demeanor, that they just relish the fight. They live for the fight. I love it so. What is it that you love? It should be Jesus. I love him so. And they say, I love standing for doctrinal purity. I love theological correctness. No, it should never be I love that more than Jesus. And yet so often, we can stand back just like Patton and say, oh, how I love this battle so much. A doctrinal fight is not to be loved, but through tears to be waged when necessary as an expression of our devotion to the one from whom all truth flows. That's why we fight. And these believers have left their first love. Notice, if you were to ask 100 people, 99 out of 100 people, if you were to ask them, when the Bible says, uh, this I have against you, that you have blank your first love, most people would say, lost your first love. Most people, most believers, most Christians would say, I have this against you, that you've lost your first love. But the word here is not lost. It's not like your car keys this morning where you're trying to find them. Oh, no, where did I put them? You have to retrace your seven. Ah, I got them. Hooray. No, this is abandoned. If you like marking up your Bible, you could circle this word, you could draw a line to your margin, and you could put literally abandoned. You have made a decision to turn your back on Jesus. You have abandoned him. You have left him. That's why in verse 5, Jesus says, remember from where you have fallen. This was a deliberate fall. You took a step away from Christ and towards anything other than him. Think of 
maybe a, a romantic relationship where you spend so much time and energy and money lavishing gifts on the other person, and then over time you just you start to say no. Uh, less gifts, fewer gifts, less attention, less energy, and it's no wonder why marriages struggle as they get older if you don't put the energy into your marriage that you had at the beginning. And so here, Jesus says, that's happened, and the whole reason that that happens is because you have abandoned me from the start. You have abandoned me. So, there's one other pattern that we need to have in our minds as we go through these seven letters. And it's just three specific D words that every church has some combination of these three D words. We've seen two of them already, deeds and doctrine. The, the Ephesians had deeds and they had biblical, theologically accurate doctrine. But they're missing devotion. They're missing devotion. They're missing a love for Jesus. And ultimately, if they don't have a love for Jesus, the doctrine's going to end up dying and the deeds will end up stopping. So one of the most basic, overarching, fundamental realities to these seven letters is the question of how are you doing in these three departments? How are your deeds? How is your doctrine? And how is your devotion? But we don't want to keep them all parallel as if they're three equal things. It's, it's moving upward. You start with devotion to Jesus, you know who he is in the doctrine, and then you live out correct deeds. These Ephesian believers do not have devotion. They have a stellar commitment to the truth, but a settled indifference to the Savior. They have, we could put it this way, loveless orthodoxy. And love is the center of what makes us Christians. A non-believer can really do everything else a believer can do except for loving Jesus and what flows out of loving Jesus. A non-believer can do good things in ministry. A non-believer can say right things about what the Bible says. But a non-believer has no love for Jesus. That's why love is so often used in the Bible to speak of a Christian. Uh, 1 Corinthians 16, if you do not have love for Christ, you will be accursed. It's about love. If you love me, Jesus says, you're going to keep my commandments. But it starts with loving him and the deeds flow out of that love. And if you have no love for Jesus, and your greatest love is sin or anything other than Jesus, then you won't want to be in heaven. You're not going to be in heaven, but you wouldn't even want to be in heaven because you would be living in a place where everyone's greatest affection is Jesus, yours isn't, and your greatest affection is sin, and sin doesn't exist in heaven. It's all about love. That's why some people... Uh, we talk a lot in our evangelism about what to do if somebody seems like they want to receive Jesus. And a lot of people throughout the ages have done this sinner's prayer. There's nothing wrong, inherently wrong about it. But so often people just go back to the sinner's prayer that they prayed when they were seven years old. They have lived a completely different life that's totally pagan. It doesn't match up with their, uh, their love for Jesus as they professed at first. But they go, no, I have assurance because of that one prayer. I have assurance because of that prayer that I prayed when I was seven. My question is, do you love Jesus? Do you love him? And do you love him more than anyone in the world? And if you don't, you have reason to wonder about your salvation. And if you don't, just stay in the text until you do. I, I will stay with somebody. If anybody ever came after church and said, I want to know more about Jesus. I don't know if I'm saved and I, I, I want to be saved. 
I wouldn't just, hey, let's go pray the sinner's prayer. There would be an aspect of that, absolutely, because they need to know the gospel. But I would say, I will sit with you for however long it takes to just read the scriptures so that you know why Jesus is better than anything in the world. And you'll get it. If God opens your eyes to see who he is, you'll get it. You'll say, oh, I know. I love Jesus. And once you love Jesus, you're saved. That, we can put that stamp on it. Do you love Jesus? The Ephesian church loved the cause, but they didn't love the king. Paul probably would have told them when he was there for the three years as he was writing Ephesians, 2nd Corinthians, he probably would have told them something to the effect of 1 Corinthians 13. You can do a lot in ministry. You can even give up your body to be burned in persecution and suffering, but if you don't have love, it profits you what? Nothing. You don't gain anything from that. Love is the center. There's no substitute for love. No human efforts can, substitute, can be substituted for love. You can do all sorts of things for God, but if you don't love him, it profits you nothing. This is what Jesus says in Mark chapter 7, which is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13. These people, the Pharisees he's speaking to, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They say they love me, and they may even do deeds that look like they love me, but their hearts don't. They're far from me. So, this I have against you, that you've abandoned your first love. Turn to Ephesians. I want to go to the very, very end of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 23. Remember, these are the same people. Probably one more generation removed, but these are the same people in the same church, in the same city. And Paul writes, verse 23, Peace to the believers in this church and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. What happened between Paul writing that of, oh, this church loves Jesus, to John writing what he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to this church? You've abandoned your first love. What happened? And how can we get that love back? What happened? And how can we get that love back? Here in Ephesians chapter 6, we have a, a picture again of this church in Revelation 2 that loves Jesus, but that love has, has been abandoned. In Revelation chapter 2, the, this church is commended for her hard work, her perseverance, her defense of the faith, her, uh, her perseverance in the face of heresy. And yet here's a church which has lost the heart of a bride. She's no longer in love. She's Martha, so busy for Jesus, and not Mary, who treasures communion with Jesus more than anything else. Now, obviously, love, your intensity of love for Jesus is going to wax and wane. It fluctuates in its intensity. That's absolutely true. That's the experience of a believer. 
But love for Jesus must be the distinguishing mark of who you are if you claim to be a Christian. And it must be. It's imperative that it be the distinguishing mark of CBC. If, if there is anything that could simply be said about CBC, uh, there's a lot of things that people could say. We work hard in ministry. We love the gospel. We share the gospel. We're a, a great family together. We're very generous. We serve. We have good teaching. We have good preaching. Theologically sound. We have great theologically accurate books that we give away to people. There are so many things that could be said, but if you boil all of them down, those all should flow from one foundational reality for us as a church. If you were to say one thing about CBC, it would be, oh, she loves Jesus more than anyone in the world. Then everything else will flow out of that. Everything else will flow out of that. John, writing Revelation, is well aware of the emphasis that Jesus makes on love, right? He was there with Peter in John chapter 21 when Jesus was saying to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? John was there, and then you remember, he says, hey, how am I going to die? Remember that whole situation? Peter says, uh, Jesus tells Peter you're going to be crucified. John says, if we're passing out information of future events, I'd like to be in on this. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. But John was there. John heard Jesus say to Peter, if you love me, then you can do whatever. Do the ministries. Feed my, my lambs. He doesn't say, are you perfect? Jesus doesn't say, are you never going to sin again? Jesus doesn't say, do you regret what you did in denying me three times? Jesus just asks, do you love me? Because everything will flow from that. And John writes in his own uh, epistle in 1 John that uh, we love him because he first loved us. It's all about love. He heard Jesus say, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's all about love. And if you don't love Jesus, or you're wondering about if you really love Jesus more than you love anything in the world, just don't leave. Lunch can wait. Don't leave until you've had a conversation with somebody and ask them, what does it look like to love Jesus? How do you love Jesus more than anything? Why do you love Jesus more than anything? How do you get out of your spiritual apathy? How do you go back to the first love that you have abandoned? Uh, we'll look at that, Lord willing, next week. And Jesus himself in this letter gives us a three-step process of how to get back to our first love. He doesn't leave us. But let me say right now what John says in 1 John. If you know the love that God has given to you, you will love him back. So the first step is, let's go back to the cross. Let's go back to the gospel. Let's go back to the amazing love that God gave us through Jesus and remember how unbelievable the truth of the gospel was the first time we heard it. The first time we really heard it. Is this possible? Can I be forgiven? Can all of my shame be taken away? Is this possible that somebody loves me this much? Is it possible that my punishment has been paid in full? Is it possible that I don't have any more work to do, but Jesus did all the work? The gospel says, yes, it's possible. It's true. It's real. So let's stay close to the cross. And we'll come back next week and we'll talk about what Jesus says to do as we're clinging at the foot of the cross to Jesus. What Jesus says to do if you find yourself abandoning your first love. Father, we thank you so much for our time this morning. Thank you for your word, which is so rich, 
so deep. And as we said earlier, as we read it, it reads us and just lays us bare. God, we are known by you. We are seen by you. And more than that, our affections are known. They're seen. They're felt. And so, Father, we we want to sit in this moment and ask the question, what would you commend about us? What would you criticize? Have we also abandoned our first love? Do we love the fight more than we love our King? And so, Father, we want to pray this prayer through song. May our greatest love, our greatest affection, our greatest glory ever be Christ and Him crucified. We pray it in His name. Amen.